Hello, this is Renee Teet, and you're listening to episode 15 of the Becoming a Data Scientist podcast, sponsored by DataCamp. Today, we'll get to meet David Messa, Chief Knowledge Architect at NASA. I think that's a really cool job title, and we'll find out more about what it means today. David has worked at the National Aeronautics and Space Administration in Houston for many years, from technical engineering lead to program manager to knowledge architect, and he's been innovating for the U.S. government by designing and implementing solutions for knowledge management. Let's meet him now. All right. Hi, David. Hi, Renee. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. All right, so let's start with the question I ask everybody on this podcast. Do you consider yourself to be a data scientist? That's actually a good question, and, and having watched some of your podcasts, I've, uh, I've always asked myself that same question. I consider myself maybe a, a hybrid or a quasi-data scientist, uh, primarily because uh, my work entails a lot of different things besides just data science. Uh, so I incorporate it a lot into my, uh, my daily routine. Uh, so maybe if I... I'm an operational data science where I apply all these algorithms and methods into my daily work in order to help our end users. Okay. That's great. Well, we're going to get to your um, work experience and your cool job that you have now later on. But first, okay. let's start with uh, your early days. So when you were young, um, was there anything that indicated that you would later go on to work with data in this way or um, you know, lead to the career that you've had? Yeah, I look back at my, my career, look back at my life, and I think it was always because I was asking questions. I always wanted to, to find out answers, and I was always trying to determine the answers based on the, on the data that I had at the time. They know I was doing it then, um, but, but at the time, you know, when I was going through elementary school and on to high school, I was always the one people were, were probably shying away because I had a lot of questions <laughs> all the time, uh, trying to figure out uh, how to solve part, different problems. That's great. So take us through your education, all the way from when you were young through college, and you have multiple degrees. So, so give us the history. Okay. Uh, well, uh, I, first off, I am a first first generation American here, so I always look at what we, what we've been able to accomplish since my parents moved over here from Mexico. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, standard public high school, public education, all the way up through high school, went to University of Houston, uh, where I got an MIS degree. Okay. Actually, I, I started off in in engineering. And it's from anybody back in the 80s that did any kind of engineering work, they probably remember having to take Fortran and having to take Fortran and program it with the punch cards. And, and too many times that I've seen people crying on the floor because their punch cards fell down, uh, it, it just frustrated me. It said, it has to be a better way. And as I was walking by a different uh, classroom one day, I noticed these, these uh, students working on a uh, monochrome monitor. I asked them, what, what are you guys doing? And they're programming. You're programming on a computer screen on a, on a, with a keyboard? What is this? Uh, so after I got more information, I found out that the school university started a, a computer uh, program uh, or class or schedule, and I, and I joined that. I switched over from engineering over more to computer science, eventually made the, the shift more to management information systems because I wanted to have a broad range of, of knowledge across the information technology spectrum. 
Okay, so did that did management information systems combine like the the computer science and the business, and what was involved in that? It, it combined the computer science with understanding how to implement um, IT or inf- or information technology within a business. Uh, okay. So whether that's a database or a network or, or websites, all of that information was put together, put together so you could understand how to actually apply that within a business, uh, as well as program the application that you need to develop. Okay, and then where did you go from there? Did you start working right out of undergrad, or did you go started, into a graduate degree? No, I started working right out of undergrad. Um, actually, I, I kind of made a little shift and went into a finance field uh, for about eight years, um, developed doing financial management. It was the 80s. It was the the era of uh, of uh, big business and, and, and a lot of money. Uh, mm-hmm. So I wanted to. I got caught up in that and decided to work in that for about eight years. And then after a while, I, I felt I needed a cleansing. Of uh, some sort from from that field, and I worked as a, uh, a manager within a nonprofit organization for five years. Okay. Well, uh, before we move on, when you were in the finance industry, um, what were you doing? Were you programming software? Were you working with databases? I was actually a stockbroker. Oh, okay. You know, for, for eight years, but there, even during that time, while, while I was while I was doing the financial analysis, I was the only one that actually had a computer that was running models and algorithms against the data to try to, try to uh, uh, find the best investments of that time uh, within within my area. Um, and, and at the time, I was running on a small you know eighty eighty eight. Uh, processor, and, we, and I was excited because I had 64 kilobytes of, of uh, RAM <laughs> on my system, and my algorithms it took maybe you know eight hours overnight to run rather than, than a whole day. Um, but it, it, I was still working with computer science and, and, and trying to look at algorithms to develop these models, and really that was always my love, but I got caught up in, in looking to try to see what I could do in the financial area for a while. Mm-hmm. So what did you do with the nonprofit? In the nonprofit, I was uh, working as the chief operating officer. Uh, my main goal was to try to uh, increase its budget. Uh, it was primarily state-funded grants and some, some federal grants. Uh, I did a lot of grant writing, uh, but in my spare time, I started working with the infrastructure within the, uh, within the uh, office there. Uh, so I started developing databases mm-hmm. to try to and back to Access 1.0. Uh, utilizing utilizing that technology and really found a love for for database development at that time. Um, and, and as I developed, uh, I was able to increase the the budget of that uh, organization from about seven hundred thousand to almost three million dollar budget by the time I left. About five right. years later. So I I started in databases as well in Access, not with Access one <laughs> but relational database design. Um, so were you designing the database with the intention of doing reporting and data analysis on the other side? I mean, what what was your approach there? Well, it was primarily for reporting and some analysis. Uh, mm-hmm. As a nonprofit organization, you have to cr- create a lot of reports to your your uh, your grantors. They want to know mm-hmm. what you're using the money for, who's getting it, the demographics, the information of the uh, between the genders, and, and what kind of results you were having. So, uh, yeah, it was definitely first reporting and some analysis on how the funding that we were getting was actually helping the clientele at the time. Okay, great. And then, what was next for you? After that, since um, uh, there was kind of a downturn in the economy, um, and, and I started to look around, uh, we had to shut some doors. I, I ended up leaving the company at that time, and I wanted to get back into my first love, which was computers. Uh, I always enjoyed that. Uh, I was able to land a position at, at NASA, uh, and I was in my early 30s at that time, um, so I landed a position in NASA for a year as a uh, uh, technical uh, assistant working on IT technical problems within NASA. Wow, neat. Um, 
so I did that for a year, and, and, and the whole time I was working on databases and showing folks there how to use access and how to use uh, uh, different types of relational models. I was able to land that into a job at, at uh, another NASA contractor doing at the neutral buoyancy lab, uh, which is the big foot, big 40 foot pool they have where they, where they train the astronauts mm-hmm. as a database developer. Ah, what kind of data were they collecting that you were designing a database for? Most of it was training information, both for the divers and the astronauts. Uh, what kind of inf- what kind of training they're 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 doing within while they're doing their extravehicular activities or EVAs? Uh, how much training they've had? How many times they've been in the water? And a, a way for them to be able to understand uh, whether the astronaut was fully trained before they go up into space to to do the uh, EVA. Um, but I only did that primarily for six months. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened after six months is my IT manager. Uh, resign, um, leaving us with, with nobody there to run the actual IT department within the NBL. Uh, so they've asked me to step up and take the, take the position as the IT manager. So I was the IT manager there for the next almost six years. Wow, that was a quick move up to a position you It was a definitely quick while. move up, but they still required me to do the, the database stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, so I still worked through the database, but it, it allowed me to really use my MIS information and degree uh, to work on websites on, on networking. I put in a, uh, a fiber optic uh, network within there. So it really challenged me and expanded some of the work I was doing uh, to understand the entire IT infrastructure. Great. So um, what were some of the early analysis tools you were using? Were you mostly developing like access reports? Access reports, did some Excel with the visualization, um, really kept thinking that hey, there has to be a better way uh, many times. Um, we, we looked at different types of uh, um, software plugins or, or to do visualization and analysis, uh, most of it done with combination of Excel and Access. So uh, as a government uh, contractor at the time, uh, funding was very, very tight. We, we, we couldn't go out and buy the big um, uh, analytical tools. So you said that role was for six years, and you're still at NASA now. So have you been at NASA the entire time? From that time frame, yes, I went at NASA. I went from a contractor. At the end of those six years, I was hired on as a civil servant. Okay. Uh, within the Information Resources Director, which is our IT arm here at NASA, as a workstation engineer, looking uh-huh. over the entire workstations at JSC at the time, which was about 12,000 workstations that we were responsible for. So that was like an IT management role? It, it was... Um, it, it, it was not necessarily considered a management role, but I was responsible for all the workstations. Wow, that's a big deal when it's a place like NASA. <laughs> it definitely uh, it, it was some challenging times. Okay, so how did you get into like from there? How did you go into this current role, which I think you have the coolest title? And why don't you tell us what that is and tell us how you got from managing a bunch of computers to what you do now? Okay, so, so my chief, my current title is Chief Knowledge Architect uh, for, for NASA. I love uh, and, that, Chief Knowledge <laughs> Architect. <laughs> and it's something that uh, I was able to develop uh, and work through because when I was asked my role as, a, as an IT workstation engineer, I, I then became a project manager and a project lead on different types of different projects, looking at how we implement uh, encryption, how we do desktop backup. Uh, that led me to, uh, to go and actually to the Knowledge Management Office, which is a, a different change because uh, going from an IT to knowledge management, within knowledge management, what you're really looking at is how you you take your data and transform it into knowledge, knowledge that the end users can use. Uh, so there was a lot of use of this, a lot of combination of not only a strategy, but analysis and informatics to, to combine all of that together. Um, so when I first started 
roughly about six years ago now, I started looking at what the uh, what we were trying to do and how we were trying to develop uh, our knowledge for our end users. And many, many times people will, will have a knowledge management strategy, which are things such as lessons learned databases, uh, case studies, risk analysis, um, dashboards, business intelligence, uh, but they have a strategy, but they don't really have a way of implementing it. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what the IT arm is supposed to do. But many times they don't talk to each other in the same manner. They don't understand the same language. Right. And, I'll give, and I'll give you an example. One of my first meetings I had when I joined the organization, I was talking with my taxonomist and my web developer trying to, to figure out the best way to improve our search capabilities uh, that we have. Uh, the, the taxonomist was asking for the metadata. She wanted to get some more metadata on the documents, on the information. The web developer didn't understand why she needed the metadata. And they've been having this conversation for several months. They, they've got into the heated arguments. I finally stopped the meeting. We, we called it. And, and I went back to them later on and said, okay, to the taxonomist, explain to me what is metadata to you. Mm-hmm. Data, data on the data. Classic definition. I said, okay, I understand and I agree. Now, give me description. Well, you know, you look at the document, you have the title, you have the author, you have the, uh, um, the, the abstract could be part of the metadata, keywords. Okay, that, that's good. So then I went to the developer, gave me the same definition of metadata, said, give me some definitions. Well, it's the uh, type of file. You know, in a, in, a, in, a, in a database, is it a blob? Is, is it a binary? Is it a, mm-hmm. you know, so he's looking more on the actual information in, in the database as metadata where the taxonomist is looking at the document and the, and, the key, and the key terms and information within that document. They had the same definition, but they were looking for two totally different information. Well, that's so, good. So, so that got me to start thinking that we needed somebody that can talk all these languages. Yeah, that's good. So you've been a translator between the two groups? Correct. More of a liaison translator to get them to understand that they're maybe using the same terms, but they're, they're applying it differently. Uh, but that was only the first piece of it because then I noticed that now we've got the strategy and we've got the informatics or the IT infrastructure to transmit the data across our end users. We needed to have a way to actually mold or transform that data into knowledge, and that's where the data science piece comes in. Mm-hmm. We're using different models and algorithms to be able to take the information we have, put it in, in – extract that knowledge and then put it in a way that, that's useful to our end users. Mm-hmm. So what have you found are some um, good techniques for, for working with that kind of team of, um, you know, multiple different backgrounds and people all trying to work on one project that all speak different languages? Um, how do you approach that? Because I think that's where a lot of data scientists end up landing in organizations. It's kind of that in between the business units and the IT units and the database people and the tech people and management. So, so, uh, you know, what are some things that you've learned over time that, that help you in that role? Well, a good question. Um, I think part of that, of course, and, and you may hear this all the time, and it, it's probably over, it's just good communication. Getting mm-hmm. people to talk to each other, to, to, to understand what they're trying to say. The other part is that I try to bring them all together. Um, and many times over the years when I looked at people doing projects, they, they, they have the, the project teams, but they work independently. I wanted to make sure that they were working as a unit together and they, and they were housed together. But any time they went to go work on a project to, to solve an issue for some of our end users, they went together as a team to gather the information so they all had the same information 
hearing the same information the same way from everybody. Uh, so they're on the same on the same board. They're not having to translate back and forth to each other. Once they have that, they come back and then talk about it to make mm-hmm. sure that they they're, they have, they have the same perspective. Uh, and that's that's key to a lot of things that I found is making sure that everybody is thinking about it from the same perspective, looking at it from either the, in the case I just said it earlier, either from the document side or from the database side. How are you going to define metadata and what you're looking for? Mm-hmm. So kind of laying the groundwork as a group together yeah. before going off separately. Yeah. Okay, great. And um, how large are the teams that you work with? Uh, generally, they're anywhere from three to five. Um, mm-hmm. I try to have somebody that has some knowledge management uh, capability, understands the strategy, how to, how to work through that, somebody that has some information um, architecture or development capabilities, and then a data scientist. From time to time, the, my data scientist can do both. Um, but generally I try to keep them a little separate if I can because there's two different worlds they have to really work with and so many different policies we have to deal with. I don't want them to be bogged down trying to solve one issue when I need them working on a different issue also. Right. Well, um, looking at your bio, you have some uh, additional education that we haven't talked about. So I do. Tell us a little bit more about that. Okay. So uh, back in 2010, I decided to go back for some uh, – um, graduate courses, in a, and I got a degree in engineering management out of the University of Houston, Clear Lake, and that's primarily a, uh, um, it equates to a, a, uh, an MBA, but more for engineers, rather okay. than looking at the um, um, the business side of things, they, they look at how an engineer may apply some of the same things that an MBA learned within an engineering project, the technical side, trying to do tech, develop technical projects rather than, than developing a business. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did that in 2012. Um, grad, I'm sorry, I did it in 2010, graduated in 2012, uh, started looking around for a, a, a um, doctorate program uh, that, I could, that I could do without having to quit my job, <laughs> something yeah, well, that I could work what was motivating you to continue your education at that time? It's something that I've always wanted to do. I've always been a, a, a lifelong learner. I think I've always read many of the things I've done over the years, uh, even going back to the database development. Uh, uh, while I had a background in it, I, I didn't, wasn't immersed in it. Uh, I started reading a lot of books, started reading a lot of information on how to develop databases, on normalization, on, on how to develop your schemas. And, and So everything I've done, I've always tried to learn. I finally decided it was time for me to formalize it a little bit and, and, and get something out of it um, just for for business side of it also for my work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, I decided to get that engineering management degree. But while I was looking for a uh, doctorate program, I, I started taking statistics classes, uh, working on a master's in statistics at the same university uh, while I'm looking around. And I did that for almost two years when I came across a, a, a doctorate program I was interested in. Um, it's actually an education. Um, looking at uh, how do we increase STEM um, students into the STEM field. Wow. So what made you transition from engineering background into education? A lot of it, I think, has to do with, with my stage in life. Uh-huh. Uh, I am probably, at this point, 12 to 15 years away from retirement. 
and, and I look at that and I and I probably do not want to retire at that time. Uh, so my goal is to to be able to share the information that I've learned over the years and, and try to look at all the different aspects that I've been able to work in from not only from a finance aspect, from a business aspect, from, from a knowledge management to information technology and also from a statistical aspect and be able to give back in, in a way um, that people can utilize. So I'm hoping to be able to eventually start teaching at a university. Um, Awesome. So, so my doctorate will hopefully help me to develop the curriculum in knowledge architecture that I can then apply at some university down the road. Great. So we haven't gotten into the details of what is knowledge architecture. So tell us a little bit more about that, and then how does your do these different advanced education and engineering management and statistics and a doctorate in education, how did your work through that um, kind of inform you as a knowledge architect? Well, um, it, it, let's take the, let's take a look at the knowledge management side of it. That was something that I really had to learn um, and, and really understand because when I spoke with folks about knowledge management here in the organization and I asked them to tell me what do they believe knowledge management is, the, the big question I got was lessons learned. That's, mm-hmm. that's where you put all your lessons learned. But knowledge management is a lot more than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you really dig into knowledge management, there's probably – depending on who you talk to, anywhere from 50 to 80 different disciplines that you can look at within within knowledge management. And do you mean organizational knowledge management, like capturing what the people in the organization know? And sharing that? That's part of it. That's part, that's one of the one one of the possible concepts within knowledge management, organizational learning, uh, case studies, making sure that you take that um, implicit information into ex- turn it into explicit, get that tactile information from uh, I'm sorry, the tacit information that that you uh, are able to get out of um, um, the folks that have done the work over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if you talk to many organizations, you know that we've got an aging population. There's a lot of baby boomers like myself that are going to retire. Uh, I've got to be able to transfer my knowledge over to somebody else or, or hopefully many people uh, to, for them to be able to use. That's a little bit part of knowledge management. How mm-hmm. do we take that information out of people like me um, and be able to, to transfer to the next generation? Uh, for them to be able to use. So things like lessons learned, case studies, oral history, search, uh, it's a major component of it. Uh, um, analytics is also a component of, uh, of knowledge management and standpoint of dashboards and business intelligence and being able to share that, visualize that information back to the end users. Mm-hmm. Um, so so my that was a lot of learning on my own, um, but I wanted to increase my knowledge of how to develop projects, mm-hmm. how to t- IT projects in particular, engineering projects. Uh, that's the reason I, I went into the engineering management masters. To, to how do I manage? How do I, I effectively show this information? How do how can I better uh, make sure that my IT projects come to fruition? Um, because if you look at a lot of studies, seventy five percent of IT projects generally fail. Right, and in my um, engineering management courses in grad school, we talked a lot about the different stakeholders that are involved um, when you're doing a project like that. So can you talk a little bit about the types of stakeholders that you've dealt with at NASA and and how um, kind of tying in the, the knowledge management with the project management and engineering, you know, I, it's just fascinating to me when I find other generalists because <laughs> I think I'm that way too. So when people aren't a very specific, like I am an engineer, right. you know, it's a little harder to describe you. So can you get a little more into what kind of people you interact with and, and you know, how your role fits into the bigger organization? Sure. So so at my stage and where I'm at, I interact with just about 
everybody within a project. Uh, so you got different folks or different groups within a knowledge architecture uh, framework. You have knowledge engineers, you have uh, data analysis, um, knowledge technicians, for, for lack of a better word. Um, but all of these folks, they have different people they work with and different stakeholders that they work with. A knowledge engineer may work with uh, um, the data creator. Understanding how they created the data, how you know what what's the, the data management plan that they have in place? Is there one to begin with, uh, and how can they, they they grab that information, look at the metadata, and be able to to uh, actually store that in a way that's easier for us to apply some of the informatics to it to be able to show that. In my level, I work with uh, you know from the project managers all the way down primarily trying to get them all to communicate with each other and make sure they understand that from the get-go, like any project, a lot of the upfront work has to be done. Part of that upfront work they have to understand is the knowledge management life cycle. You need to plan ahead how you're going to capture and create your data, how you're going to store it, how, where are you going to warehouse it, how you're going to model it and analyze it, and how you're going to visualize it. All that has to be done upfront. And part of my role, because it's not something that people really think about, is to really educate them on some of, some of the things we can do. But mm -hmm. along with that, with the education, I have to be able to show them what are some of the uh, IT tools that are available for them to be able to use to be able to do the knowledge management piece of it, you know, whether it's a website or a database or, or some type of visualization tool. Um, my goal is always to look at the problem and then find the right tool for that problem. Too many mm -hmm. times we've got people that have a tool and they're looking for problems to, to fit it into with right. the hammer. So, so for my stakeholders, you know, the project managers, the, the team members, the, uh, uh, the web development or IT teams, I also talk to uh, the funding folks so they understand, you know, where the funding is coming from, how are they going to be able to use it, uh, are there any constraints in the government side, we have constraints, uh, you know, what we can spend on and how much we can spend. Mm -hmm. um, we, are there travel that we have to take training, making sure that, to me, training is a very important thing among all teams. We should we should be training everybody within that team uh, to make sure that they're able to to take, then pass on that information later on and then grow with it. We can't hide or share that information. Uh, we've got to make sure that it's, it's accessible to everybody. Uh, and what are some of the tools that you use to do that? Currently, um, I, I, I've fallen in love with graph databases. Mm -hmm. uh, so things like Neo4j, I utilize with graph databases. Um, I've got, um, of course, from, from a search capability, I've, I'm using a tool such as a IHS Goldfire, uh, which gives me a, a good uh, combination of keyword, facet, and cognitive type search capabilities. Uh, I also use, of course, uh, uh, Elasticsearch, uh, MongoDB for some document databases. Mm -hmm. um, again, I, I'm trying, part of my role as a knowledge architecture, of course, and, and I'm not sure if I mentioned this, to, is to develop and implement a technological roadmap to transform data into knowledge. Uh -huh. So really what that means is I get to play with a lot of cool toys. <laughs> well, and a lot of yeah. those are open source. So what is the decision-making process like? Uh, funding, more, more than not. Um, uh -huh. Yes, NASA has a, a fairly decent fund, funding that they get from the government, but that's all allocated to a lot of the programs, the International Space Station, Orion, uh, different. So a lot of that money goes there. I'm a, my organization is, sits at a level where we support all the other programs and projects, um, So, but our funding is not for hardware and equipment like that. It's more for intellectual information. Mm -hmm. uh, so we don't get a whole lot of money to do things. So a lot of times I, I start off with open source uh, in order to understand the capabilities Mm -hmm. to make sure that it's useful, something we can use, uh, and then at the end, you know, find a way to pay for that, either by going to the programs and projects and saying, look, this tool will help, 
you know, will you help me fund it so I can help you down the road too? Okay, great. So it sounds like you, you bring a lot of things together. <laughs> so I try and, to. And you mentioned that, that transformation from, from data to knowledge. So tell us right. what that means and what's involved in that. Well, what I look there is, is utilizing the different types of data data science algorithms, methodologies that, that, that are out there. Uh, so a quick example I can give is that uh, probably about a year and a half ago now, I had a, a, a young engineer come to me, uh, and he was going to look at the lessons learned database. You know, one of the key things we try to teach engineers or any, anybody on a project team is that the first thing you want to do is go back and look at the lessons learned, see if anybody's done it before. And, and try to learn from that, try to gain some experience from that. And, and we have a really good uh, group of people that will submit lessons learned mm-hmm. on their information. But more often than not, if you ask somebody, you know, about a lessons learned database, they, they say they don't use them because it's hard to find anything. And okay. this particular engineer, same thing, very similar happened. So he had a, a, a list of 23 key terms that he wanted to search for. Uh-huh. So he went to our JSC search infrastructure, which was is managed by the IT department, put in those key terms and unfortunately couldn't find a whole lot of information. Yeah. Um, the reason being is because it was a keyword-based search engine and it indexed over 10 million items. So it was looking at 10 million items, not necessarily just the lessons learned database. Right. Uh, and in this particular uh, engine, it does a page rank algorithm. So the more people that look at a certain page, the higher it goes up in value, and and that's the ones that are going to pop up. And a lot of these items that the person was looking for haven't been seen, haven't been looked at in years, so there was no reason for the algorithm to pick it up. Okay, so it's a challenge of finding the more obscure item. Right. So, so I said, this, that started me thinking, we got to, to do a little bit better. So I went to the IT group. I said, can you just index the lessons learned database and apply these key terms to it? They said, yeah, we can do that. A few days later, they sent me back a spreadsheet with 23 tabs, one for each of the key terms, and each of them had links to documents that may or may not be lessons that represent information. That, that the, but the engineer still had to go in there and look for this information themselves. I said, okay, no, we can do better than this. You don't need a, a gigantic spreadsheet of links every time you want to search for something. <laughs> so, I, so it has to do something. So I, I started working on it, started thinking about it, and I, I, as a sample, I took a little over 2,000 lessons learned from our, our public lessons learned da- database on llis.nasa.gov. Uh-huh. I took all those lessons, downloaded them down. They were in a semi-structured state. They gave me a spreadsheet with uh, a lot of metadata, the, the title, the abstract, and the actual lesson and information. So I took that and I imported that into a uh, into R, uh, into a data frame within R. And I, I looked at, I developed the corpus, and then I applied a topic modeling algorithm on the lessons themselves to group them into different topics. Uh-huh. And then it ended up putting them into 27 different topics. And, and you know, of course, you've got to under, you got to know what the topics are beforehand, the number of topics. So I went through some calculations trying to figure that out. Uh, so I got 27 topics out of that. Then I took those and correlated them against their uh, self-designed categories. So now I know what categories, the topics. Uh, I have some information there, some extra information. So I then put that into a graph database. Mm-hmm. So with this graph database, I have the document as a node or an entity that's related to somebody who wrote it, where it occurred at a center, um, how they, what topic it's in, what category it's in. And, and so now the, the, the end user, the, the engineer, was able to go in there and look at, I want to look at uh, the topic that contains with water valves or fuel valves, which there happened to be a topic of that. So he was able to find a bunch of documents strictly on 
or lessons learned strictly on fuel valve, water valves. So that was one thing he was able to do, so narrow down his search a lot quicker. He was able to get to the information faster. But because I was able to correlate these topics against each other based on the self-assigned categories, now I had topics. You could jump from one topic to another and find lessons you may have missed. Right, because it would be enable kind of a drill through to the other right. using the relationships in the graph. Okay. Correct. And one of the things that was really unique on this was that we had a lesson in the fuel valve, uh, and, I, and I give this example in some of my talks, that was correlated three hops over to another topic on uh, uh, that was more about uh, battery hazards and fire hazards with batteries. Hmm. And I couldn't understand, you know, how is, how is a topic that's more about fuel valves and water valves correlated to battery hazards? Uh-huh. So as I started looking at the, the documents within the topic of fuel batteries, on bat- I mean, I'm sorry, on, on battery hazards, um, there were documents in there, lessons learned about how these batteries leaked or, or the, and the acid corroded or contaminated a fuel valve or a tank that ended oh. up damaging a fuel tank. So these are lessons that wouldn't have popped up in a standard keyword-based search because they were more about battery hazards. but. By having correlated them using data science, you know, a topic modeling algorithm, I was able to, the engineer was able to find these documents faster and really quickly and be able to to get more information uh, that he can utilize within his project. Yeah, that's great. I mean, you would definitely want, so now you can think about where the fuel lines are relative to the batteries. Right. <laughs> In addition to just making sure the fuel lines don't leak. <laughs> that's right. And then, and then there's also the different types of uh, programs that we're associated with. So if I was really looking more for robotics as opposed to flight control, I could mm-hmm. look for Lessons that are about fuel valve, fuel valve or, or water valves that are in the robotics area or mm-hmm. in the flight control area. So you, you can narrow it down, almost a faceted approach, down to looking for lessons that, are, that have all that information inside of it. That's great. So how do you think that that relates to um, the kind of work being done both in other government organizations and also, you know, outside an industry? When you talk to other people, do you feel like what you're doing with this knowledge architecture, um, your kind of method is, is unique to your team and to NASA, or is this really generalizable and there are people doing it elsewhere? Um, I think that there, there are teams that are doing parts of it. Um, mm-hmm. I think that you may have groups. I think everybody does knowledge management to a degree, information architecture or informatics and data science. Uh, I think what's unique in what I've done is trying to be able to combine them all together mm-hmm. to make sure that you have a group of folks, knowledge architects, that can speak all three languages um, because it, that's where we have an issue is, is that the communication across the teams many times um, leads to different answers. Uh, or different scenarios, and, and you know, I guess a classic example. You know, we saw what happened when uh, uh, we had one of our Mars rovers you know, was was trying to land, um, mm-hmm. and, and it crashed. And, and because one team was doing it in inches, the other team, the other team was doing it in, in meters. It, right. it's, that, it's that communication area that we have to make sure that we're all talking the same language. That's where I think what I'm trying to uh, communicate across in my version of knowledge architecture is that you have folks that can talk the same language across all three disciplines. And it seems like there's a lot of areas of government where that happens, where you have specialists, but then they need to be able to talk across teams too. Um, Like you hear about it a lot with the different intelligence organizations and things like terrorism where they'll, they'll be doing, you know, work in parallel, but not necessarily communicating those risks across to each other. Um, so I can definitely see a lot of different applications for that type of work. Yeah, totally agree. I think that's, that's uh, an area. We can all learn to better communicate with each other. 
Yeah, that's great. So if somebody listening um, is interested in this knowledge architect type of role, uh, what kind of recommendations do you have for them in terms of learning and, and seeking out those kind of roles? Well, first off, I'm always open to hear from folks uh, so that they can definitely reach out to me if they want information. Uh, But primarily, it's it's not a field that's combined yet that I can see. There, there are folks that have combined knowledge management with uh, information science um, or, or maybe some other aspects of it, but nothing where I've actually seen uh, all three of them put together. Um, so what I think is somebody's really interested, uh, find a mentor, find somebody that maybe shares that same type of ment- mentality mm-hmm. and, and try to learn together, pick their brains, understand uh, how they communicate, how they talk the language, some of the different key terms within each of the languages, um, and, and really do a lot of reading. Um, I, I, can, I can say that reading is probably the best um, for me anyway, I just to, to, to learn, to be able to pick up different books on different topics, but ask a lot of questions from different areas. Don't be afraid to go to an area you're, you're not involved in. If you're in information science, don't be afraid to go talk to somebody in a knowledge management group and, and ask them, how can, you, how can you teach me what you guys do so that we can better work together? That's great. So how can people find you online and, and elsewhere? Um, I'm on Twitter, and it's probably one of the main things I look at at uh, David Messa David Messa One at Twitter, uh, or at David Messa One. Sorry, mm-hmm. um, then uh, or on LinkedIn. You can you can connect with me on LinkedIn, um, or you know you can email me at NASA. I don't I don't have any issue with that at David Dash One at NASA uh, mm-hmm. Be more than happy to to answer questions. So um, part of my job, of course, within the knowledge management, is to benchmark and talk to other folks. So it gives me an opportunity to share ideas with everybody and, and hopefully not only learn from them, but also pass on information, too. Excellent. Well, we'll definitely link to all of those in the show notes. Great. Well, David, thank you so much for talking with me today, and I'm sure people will gain a lot from this conversation. This is really interesting. Well, I enjoyed it, Renee, and I, and I look forward to hearing it. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, David Messa, for that great interview. You're doing some really cool stuff at NASA. Now we're going to have some announcements, but before that, let's hear from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by DataCamp. DataCamp has free and beginner-friendly introductory data science courses in both R and Python, and then a low-cost subscription option that gets you access to some pretty incredible classes, like importing and cleaning data in R, data visualization with ggplot2, statistical modeling with R, introduction to data visualization with Python, Pandas Foundations, and many others. I viewed some of their classes myself, and I really like their approach. And DataCamp is also currently the highest rated beginner content on my Data SciGuide site. There's also a DataCamp community with a blog and tutorials. Thanks to DataCamp for sponsoring this episode. You should go to datacamp.com today and check them out. I want to thank those of you who are supporting me on Patreon. Even those of you that can only contribute a dollar a month, those funds are enabling me to hire people to update my sites, Data SciGuide, the Data Science Learning Club, jobsfornewdatascientist.com, and other cool projects I have in the works. These are all linked from my blog, becomingadatascientist.com, And also, Patreon supporters get my cool new newsletter. 
Thanks to everyone who applied for that first assistant position. The applicants were all amazing. I got so many I had to close it down in just a week. <laughs> and I really hope that we raise more money through Patreon so I can hire more of them. I did hire the first one though, and her name is Sophia. I'll be introducing her on the blog soon, so keep an eye out for that post. Another announcement I have is that I am an official podcast partner of the Southern Data Science Conference. That means that I'll be helping promote the conference, and you lucky listeners of this podcast get a discount to attend it. What the organizers are trying to do is bring a data science conference not to California, not to Seattle or New York or Boston or those other places where there are many data conferences, but to Atlanta in the southern U.S., on April 7th, 2017. They actually selected my podcast in part because I'm also in the Southern US in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. Check out their speaker lineup. They have a lot of awesome talks by people that I follow on Twitter. And if you register using my coupon code, which is my first name, Renee, R-E-N-E-E, -E, you get 15% off the ticket price, which is already reasonable to start with. So again, it's in Atlanta on April 7th, and the website is southerndatascience.com. Now let's talk about the Data Science Learning Club activity. Those of you who are new to the podcast can check out the Learning Club at becomingadatascientist.com slash learning club. We have all kinds of cool activities to participate in to beef up your data science skills. I thought Jasmine's idea in the last episode of the podcast to record yourself explaining a project that you have done in order to practice communicating was a really great idea. Communication is a really important part of becoming a data scientist. So this episode's activity is to take some sort of analysis you have done. It could be a past data science learning club activity you've completed, or really any data project that you've done. Record yourself in audio or video, upload it somewhere that you're, if you're comfortable doing that, and link to it in the learning club forums so we can all constructively critique one another's explanations. The explanation should just be a few minutes long, and you can pretend the audience is a manager interviewing you for a job. So explain how you did the analysis, why you did the analysis, what your conclusions are, and what you learned by doing it. Ask questions if someone's explanation isn't totally clear, so the person presenting their analysis knows where they should beef up their explanation. Or if they drone on and get too detailed, tell them where they could be more succinct. This is a really great way to practice for interviews or for communicating on the job. I look forward to seeing what you post. So that's it for this week. Thanks again to our Patreon supporters and to Datacamp for sponsoring this episode. Bye.